Hello, welcome to Talking Flutes. Uh, this is Claire Southworth, and I'm sitting in my kitchen in Hove with John Paul Wright. Hello, 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 hello. Hello, John Paul. Actually, if, if those are people who have listened last week, they actually know that we recorded this last week, don't they? Yes, you haven't gone away yet. I haven't, but I've had a lovely coffee, so I'm as hyper as usual. Good, and we've got lots of questions to get through. So what's the first one? Right, the first one comes from a Jonathan Graveney in Washington, D.C. And Jonathan asks, Can you explain the concept of silent rehearsal as I'm struggling to understand how it will benefit me? Okay. So, silent rehearsal or mental rehearsal? It's the act of thinking through a task as opposed to actually performing that task. And simply put, silent practice helps reduce stress and boost your confidence. What's interesting is that when you silently practice something or mentally rehearse something, it's always perfect. Yes. (laughs) Which is wonderful. So even though it's imagined, it's perfect practice. So, But you do have to have the skill to achieve the task you're thinking about. So you could actually mentally think about playing through the Ebe Concerto when you're you know, a grade three flute player, mm-hmm. but you're not going to achieve it. So you have to have the skill to achieve the task you're thinking about. I mean, I could imagine myself playing a round of golf five under par at Augusta National. <laughs> it's delusional. It, 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 it does, a, uh, does me a lot of good to think that maybe I could someday do that, because I won't, but it is delusional. I wouldn't achieve it, and the dis- disappointment of trying then to do it practically would be harmful. So rehearsing a difficult piece that's beyond your expertise will not result in you playing that piece. So the, your mental rehearsal or silent rehearsal has got to be realistic, which is what we were talking about on the last podcast. Yep. The act of mentally thinking through a task helps you with the preparation and aids the actual practice. It helps reduce the stress. So if you're preparing for a concert or an audition, uh, take time to think about what it is you'll be doing. So it could be you think about arriving at the venue, um, checking the hall, checking the acoustics, warming up, waiting to go on stage, walking onto the stage, tuning up, speaking to your audience, and then starting. That's then when you actually do that event. It's not new. You've been there, you've done that. It's not a new experience. I totally get that, totally endorse that. Because um, if you, the more you do something in your mind, when you physically have to do it, as you say, you've almost done it already. Yes. Say you're practising a piece of music and you're listening to it through your headphones or you're not... Actually, I'm going completely off-piste here because silent rehearsal, you're not listening through your headphones at all, are you? You're imagining the sound. No, but let's take that... Let's, let's use that idea because you can play through your piece in your head... Yes. You don't need to listen through to the piece, but if you imagine that you're listening, so yep. you play it through in your head. Would you have the score in front of you? You you can do. It's it's up to you. It's it's that is as much silent practice as as doing it without the score. So the thing is, it takes practice. So maybe you start with the score, but it's a good idea to see whether you know your piece well enough to see whether you can think through the whole piece in your head. Because if you get stuck and you can't think of the next bit, maybe you don't know it so well. 
So you can start with small snippets and then gradually build on that. The more you do, the easier it gets. It's, it's like mindfulness, it's becoming aware. Yeah, becoming aware. And it goes back to what you said last week, uh, planning psychologically in advance. Yes. So if the idea of silent rehearsal is not just geared to playing that one piece, it's to do with the whole. It's to do with, if you're doing an exam, in your head going into the examination room. Yes, think it through. Yeah, facing the person. You know, think through every aspect. And because mental, the mental practice can benefit everyone. It doesn't matter what level you're at or what age you're at. But it does, I said earlier on, it needs practice as much as the actual playing practice. But if you try it, it will improve your confidence, reduce your stress levels, especially if you have an important performance or, or audition or exam. Now, mindfulness then. So it can start very simply. It can start with if you pick a food or a drink mm-hmm. and you look at it and you study it and you smell it and you notice the markings, the texture and the shape, and then take your time to absorb it. And then taste it and what do you experience? Where on the tongue do you taste it? So that you just take a little bit of time out to become aware of something simple. And then you can take that into your flute practice. So you can think about a phrase and then you think it through and you you hear it and you think about it and you think about the effect it has on you and how you feel about it and maybe how you can improve it. You're going into an area... You've, you've actually just got me thinking about something I'm going to do in my next podcast, Claire. Uh-huh. You've, you, what you're doing is you're introducing into uh, sonic rehearsal the use of all your senses. Yes. And that's very interesting because in sonic rehearsal, in anything, if you don't use all your senses, it's not going to necessarily translate into reality. It's mm. like golf, I'm sure. Mm. Let's, let's deviate off for a second into your one love, which is golf. <laughs> when you do your silent rehearsal on a swing, mm-hmm. you feel the golf club, don't you? You do feel the golf club, but, but also you can do... The equivalent of playing a piece in golf mm-hmm. is thinking through how you would play a hot particular hole. You'd picture the, the tee, yep. picture hitting off the tee onto the fairway, where you would hit it, what you would hit it with, next shot, where you would go... Get on the green. And would you imagine the weather? The would you feel the sun? Would you? Yes, in- imagine all that. The more, the more you can bring into your imagined state, the better it is. The more, yeah, yeah. Because the, the in, unusually, the mind cannot differentiate between something that is graphically imagined using all your senses and an actual experience. And I will do a little exercise next week to yeah. uh, give an example on that. It's it, the again just sort of moving on from that as well I, I'm certainly influenced I'm influenced by my children yep. so I've got Joe who's a psychiatrist and, and Eleanor who's in PR and so Joe gives me the, the mental aspect of things and Eleanor gives me practical skills so Joe talks about for example there are no problems only puzzles yeah where you can work things out and you think about the solution rather than think there is no solution. He also has a ponder chair. And, and I've, I use this now. I also have a ponder chair where I sit and I think about things. Is that on a defined chair? 
No, oh, it's, okay. it's, it can be anywhere. But somewhere where I th- it's sit... Like, it's a bit like a naughty step, is it, for kids? Um, except it's not a naughty step, is it? It's, <laughs> it's a, a ponder It's step. a place where you can ponder and think, because then you can think to help you act. Yeah? So you're pondering and you're thinking and you're acting on it. And it gives you, just gives you some space with which to achieve what you want to do, which is mindfulness. Yeah, we, we keep coming back to this word, don't we? Yes. And so he, he's really good to talk to because he talks about how you can work on your mental health to help you achieve and progress. And Eleanor talks to me about all the practicalities of getting that information, uh, my information, out to the masses <laughs> via the various social media platforms, which I generally make a mess of, but I'm working on it and trying to get it a little bit clearer. So mental rehearsal, a silent rehearsal, is an amalgam of lots of things, isn't it? It's not just as I initially thought when I asked the question to you, of, yeah, you just read through a piece of music in your head, and the more times you do it, the, you can hopefully fool your brain into thinking you've actually practised. Mm. But you, what you've done is you've brought in this huge amalgam of resources that you could actually practise. Yes. So some things that you, you feel that you can't, practice uh, for example is how do you cope with nerves but in fact if you think through the event that you've got that you think you might be nervous for and try and imagine your feelings and calming your feelings and controlling your breath without your flute and then you go through that whole process of the event you've got to go through and those things can be triggered then those feelings can be triggered when you're actually doing that performance so should we really be talking instead of silent rehearsal visualization it's absolutely it's visualization as much as the 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 silent thinking of the 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 music or the the look of the music it's images i think we could go on for hours doing this couldn't we because we have so many different experiences utilizing visualization i'm sure we will come back to this in later podcasts because I'm sure you've got a wealth of experience. I know you've been to India, and I know you've practiced mindfulness in India and meditation and yoga, and also as a flute player, how you would have coped with an impending recital. Mm. And if, even though you practice a lot, something had welled up, this little anxiety or nerve bubble, mm. and what you did to, as you say, calm it down. So should we park that one and come back another time? Yes, but, but just, just before you go, I'm, I'm, I was thinking that I, I was about to say I wish I knew about mindfulness when I was working towards sort of big auditions or concerts, but then maybe that's exactly what I was doing because I would be thinking through in my head and I did a lot of mental rehearsal. So maybe I was doing it all along. And I remember one of the first Talking Flute podcast interviews I did with you. You said the importance when you were studying was always being in the moment not thinking later on that day or what you're going to eat for dinner. It was always working in the moment, which, as you say, is being very mindful. Yeah, you have to focus on what you're doing. Should we move on? Yes, let's move on. Right. And this is one that I... This, I could have put this one in. <laughs> What's the funniest thing you have seen as a flute player? I found that quite difficult to think of, actually, because there are, there are lots of silly things which are of no real interest. But I, I found it quite difficult to think of one thing that was really funny. So I picked something um, that is, is humorous. And it was, I remember sitting in the Philharmonia Orchestra and we were playing Amala Symphony. 
and all the all four flutes had to play a low B, and we all four of us played on C foot joints, <laughs> and so that be- became a particular moment in this <laughs> Mahler symphony. In uh, I forget which hall it was. I think it was the the uh, festival hall, and where we all took out our foil-covered cardboard extensions to put on the end of our C-foots to play our low B. And to the audience, they just looked like a flute extension of, you know, a bit of metal, but it was just cardboard-covered foil. Oh, how cool. Yes. So one person would have had to make the whole lot, wouldn't he, to make sure? No, we each made our own. I always had it in my flute bag for for the odd low B. And it was in tune? Yeah. Well, you'd you'd check it before you played it. (laughs) You'd have practiced with it. <laughs> oh, right. So uh, it's, not, it's not like somebody falling off stage or having a habit of leaning back on their chair and falling, <laughs> falling backwards. No, no. Have no. you ever seen that, by the way? I don't think I have, no. No, because orchestral players seem to be quite... They, they, they're rooted, aren't they, in the chair? Yes. They're yeah, not I've, not, I've not seen that. I mean, people have knocked their music stands over from a great height. That's happened. You know, things happen in orchestras all the time, don't they? So... Um, and how do you keep a straight face when the brass section behind that you is really around? difficult actually you remind me that i was i remember playing i was uh, on tour i forget which orchestra it was now but in tour in spain and um our plane had been delayed by hours and hours and hours and the brass section had drunk quite a lot on the plane and we had to arrive go straight to the, the hall to play um, p- one of the moments in the piece, there was a big pause, and right after the pause, the brass had to come in with this great big crashing chord, and it all came in wrong. That's a result of, of delays on BA. <laughs> but how do you maintain the composure if you have mischievous people behind it's you? It's very difficult. It's very, very difficult. Because I'm a natural giggler, yeah. and if I had people behind me that were saying things, I would struggle. Yeah. I've had my moments, I must say. Yeah, it's very hard. But you, you do get through. <laughs> you do indeed. Right, and a question here from Patty Bourdogne. Bourdogne? Bourdogne? Looks I have to like get this that. right, don't I? Yeah. Patty Bourdogne, who lives in Aberdeen in Scotland. B-foot or C-foot, what is your preference and why? Well, I do play a C-foot, so that's my, my preference. Um, I did play for many years with a B-foot. I did find it compromised the high register too much for me. It made it too difficult or more difficult, I should say. I Also, then, at that time, those years ago, I didn't have too much repertoire with a low B. And if I, if I needed one, I used, what I was just talking about, my, um, my tin foil. Or I would borrow a foot extension. So the C foot, for me, it's lighter. The high register is easier. There are less gizmos to go wrong. Mm-hmm. And I find the, the weight of the flute and the balance of the flute better with the C foot. But, if, but, of course, nowadays there's so much material that needs that B-foot. So I'm much more likely now to, to borrow a B-foot than I would have been, you know, 15, 20 years ago. The C-foot, the little right-hand pinky has only got three keys to work. Yeah. And on the B-foot has five, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, so I've, I've become a B-foot person myself, mm. uh, albeit badly. <laughs> but, you see, a B-foot gives you... So many advantages now because you've, in terms of doing pieces with multiphonics yes. and, you know, alternative fingerings, that's what the B-foot does give you. So in my ideal world, I would have a, C, uh, a C-foot and a B-foot and change according to the repertoire I was playing. Yes, as you say, contemporary music 
it's almost you have to have a bee foot now, don't you? Need you need to, yeah. Yep. And open holes, obviously. Yep. Right, I have here several questions from a Mo or Catty. And I know, I know Mo off Instagram because he often sends in comments. So I've collated all Mo's together and I thought we'd go through them. First one is, and he's, he's, he's put, uh, talking flutes, just some ideas for podcasts and social media posts, obviously all for beginners. He's an adult that is just learning the flute. Okay. Uh, first question is how to practice playing long notes. Well, as a beginner, long notes are very tiring and breath control isn't so easy. So it, it needs to be little and often. So experiment when you're doing long notes. So we're talking about long notes in terms to improve your sound. So they're tone exercises. So you experiment. So you could blow more or blow less. Change the direction of the airstream. Play just on the head joint. Relax or tighten your embouchure. Just so you see what is cause and effect. So you see what happens when you change something. Is this looking in the mirror? If you yep, and do it all looking mirror because you don't need a book for this. And then keep your, maybe keep your teeth further apart. So it's, it's sort of just think about how you can change to make the sound change. So changing the shapes inside of your mouth as much as the front of your lips changing shape. And just see what effect it has on your sound. And that helps you become more flexible, which will help your sound in the, in, in the long term. And then maybe... Again, as a beginner, maybe not just playing long notes, but playing short melodies. That's a good tone exercise. And it, it helps you focus a little bit more because, of course, it, it gets boring playing long notes if you're not quite sure what you're looking for or listening for. So choosing your long, slow melodies of whatever genre. Slow melodies, not necessarily long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thinking back to one of the first podcasts you did, you talked about, it may be too complicated for here, but you talked about how somebody can change the sound by changing the vowels that is, you talk about the inside yes. mouth, and yes. how an A, if you're thinking of an A or producing an A, how mm. that makes a very different sound to an E. Yes, an so, so what you can do is start with maybe singing your vowel sounds. Right. But really using a good voice for it. So not a closed not a closed mouth, but really sort of really going with the vowel shape, whether it be an oo or an o or an r or an e. So sing your note that you want to play first with a shape mm-hmm. and then play the note with that shape. And that also helps get you more flexible and helps change the sounds you can make or the colours you make on the flute. Um, I quite like the vowel sounds one because I can visualise it, but also I can practice it whilst I'm sitting in my car. A-E-I-O-U. Yeah, and if you want to take that a little bit further, if I do a little bit of Mm self-promotion, I've got a book called The Expression of Colour. You do indeed. Which talks all about the vowel sounds. And also my kickstart flute tutorial for beginners has a lot of tone exercises, all just a little bit different. Kickstartflute.com. Yep. Uh, that's brilliant because you also play duets with people as well, don't you? Yes, so you can play a duet with me or with your teacher or just listen to the whole things with backing tracks, which is the next question. And I hope you're listening to this, Mo, because backing tracks, let's, let's move on to that. One, his question is learning to play with backing tracks. So yes, as I've just said on, on, the, on the Kickstart flute tutorial, I have 
24 lessons going through the 24 keys with specially commissioned music from Andy Scott. And what he's, I asked him to write the music in all genres because I don't want to be just focused on classical. I want people to have a love for music, all music. So it's for duets, two flutes with backing, with bass guitar, drums and keyboard. So you can play just with the backing tracks, or you can play one of the parts with me playing the other part, or you could play with your teacher. So there are lots of options. Luckily, with most backing tracks, whether it's with my kickstart or with any other backing tracks you might want to use, luckily they give you the pulse before you start, so that you can feel the pulse, feel the tempo and the rhythm. On kickstart, all the backing tracks start before the flute starts, so you won't hear a click You'll, you'll hear one or two bars where you're hearing the pulse and the tempo and you can see it, you can see what's being played. So that really helps you get a feel for it. If you feel that you sort of are lagging behind during backing tracks, try keeping up by just playing part of a bar. So you might just play the first beat of every bar or the first two beats of every bar. It's very easy when you're learning to sort of get behind and then you think, oh, now I've got to go back to the beginning. So... Just do part of the bar, and then as you improve, start to increase the beats that you play. The good thing about, um, obviously I've heard the kickstart flute recordings, is it's real foot-stapping stuff, isn't it? Yes, yeah, it's, just, it's, just, it's wonderful music, and it's, it's, it's full, of, full of energy, it's got beautiful melodies, and um, they, for each lesson you only get the information that you need to play that one duet, so you don't get too far ahead of yourself. And there are rhythm exercises to help you feel your pulse before you get into the, the actual duet. And it's for all standards. You don't have to be a virtuoso flute player to play along with you, do you? No, not at all. No. Moving on. And this is, I suppose this is one for me to answer, isn't it? Cleaning your flute. The do's and don'ts. Yeah. How do you clean your flute? Oh, crikey. Do you, want the honest, do you want the honest one? I can guess what that is. <laughs> now, one thing I always do is I clean, it, I clean the moisture out inside. Yeah. So I take the wooden cleaning rod and I put a lint-free gauze cloth through the eyelet at the top and I wrap the gauze cloth around, providing it's dry, and then I push it through the flute, all the parts of the flute, and until it's dry. On the head joint, I will take the gauze cloth and it has to be lymph-free because if it's not, then you get little bits of material stuck inside and that can obviously affect the pads. And I wrap it around the top of the eyelid, eyelid, and, and then I wind the cloth around the uh, cleaning rod and I push it up into the head joint. And then I check that it's all dry. Then I put the flute away and I make sure that I don't have the cleaning cloth inside the case, which is very, That's very key. important. That's absolutely key, isn't it? Yeah. What I should do is I should, if I wanted to keep my flute nice and clean, looking really clean, is to also use a polishing cloth to take off the finger marks. Uh, I must admit to being lazy on that because my priority is to make sure the inside of the flute is dry and then I put it away. Do I end up with sticky pads? Yes, I do. I do end up with um, sticky pads, but I know my 
technical director at uh, 2J Flutes would be really mad at me if I tell you what I shouldn't be doing or should be doing <laughs> with the sticky pads because often I have to take my flute down to him. That is one of the downsides of putting my flute away too early. The moisture hasn't actually disappeared. Hasn't yes, the chance. moisture on the pads. Yes. So perhaps I should leave my flute out slightly longer. Mm. So that is what I do. What do you do, Claire? I don't do what you do. You probably do it properly. <laughs> I, I actually use, I found that when I, I used the cleaning stick with a cloth, that it could some, sometimes, if you, if you put the cloth up the, the, the main body of the flute uh, where the foot joint goes, it can sometimes damage oh, right. the metal there, especially if, you've got, if, if the metal is a little bit soft. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've embraced, over the last few years, I use a flute flag. Oh yes, one of those, um, it's sort of a leatherette thing, isn't it? Yes, it's, it's, long in, it's as long as the flute, so that when I'm uh, practising, I can use a flute flag because it goes right up the length of the flute without you taking your flute apart, and you can take the moisture out at sort of regular intervals, which I, found was, I always found was better for me, because if you're mm-hmm. practising a long time, rather than to keep taking your flute apart to clean it, I'd just use the flute flag uh, every half an hour or so. But it seemed to be much more convenient and less chance of damaging yeah. using a flute flag. So I, I like the flute flag. In terms of polishing, no, I, I don't. Maybe once in a blue moon, yes, I might take fingerprints off. I always used to tell my students, these are the young students, never polish your flute because they would often damage the flute. Mm-hmm. They, would be, they would rub the, the, the keys too vigorously to try and think they're getting clean yeah. and, and maybe do damage. So I would actually say to them, don't polish your flute, actually. Just clean it out, but don't polish it. And a really big don't is don't oil it. Don't oil it. And like you said, don't put the wet cloth you've just used inside the box with the flute. No. If your flute is gritty and the mechanism's feeling gritty, I'd take it to a specialist repairer because Mm -hmm. they use very high-grade oil and it's specialist for such a fine uh, mechanism. Yeah. Now, if you get sort of water logged in your keys mm-hmm. uh, with the pa- uh, between the pad and the, and the tone hole, then you can use cigarette paper, but you just put it the cigarette paper under the pad and just close gently to absorb the moisture. Don't pull. Absolutely. That's the main thing. Do not pull. Well, as a flute professor, you can actually bring that up. I think if I had brought that up, the technical di- director, David, would have shot me because I would have said, yeah, you put the, you put the cigarette paper in and then... The assumption would be you pull it out, but you are exactly no. right. Just close, absorb the moisture, and, and then again, don't leave the wet cigarette papers in the case. No, so gently depress the key, and then let the key rise up, and then take the... Then take it out, because certainly the C-sharp hole often gets blocked up yeah, with, with moisture. And obviously the pads are very delicate. Very, very delicate, yes. And if you rip the pad, that's going to be quite a costly repair. Yeah, so in which case, always do check your flute, check the pads, and if there are any splits, get them changed. And if you're not sure uh, on what you're doing, then ask your teacher. If you've got any concerns with how your flute is performing, then take it to a good repairer. Yeah, and take advice on, on which repairer to take it to. Oh, absolutely, yes. Yeah. Right, another one that Mo asks is how to choose a flute. Now, this is a very open category isn't it how to choose a flute yeah tricky one you're looking at me um i would personally say i would go into a shop and i would know what brands are available worldwide so know what know what the popular brands are 
But ultimately, I wouldn't be swayed by a brand. I'd be swayed by what worked for me as a person, as an individual. So if I had three or four flutes in front of me, I would try each one without looking at the brand name on it and then gravitate towards the one that did something for me. Yeah, that's, that's a, good, it's a good method. If you're a beginner, you might not know. Oh, do you know, I hadn't even thought about that. I would say that, yes, if you already have some skills at playing, and especially if you're an advanced player, that is the method I would use. I would get the, 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 the shop to have put the flutes together and just pick up flutes and blow them without looking at the brand and see which ones suit. But I think if you're a beginner, you've got a real problem because there are so many flutes on the market. And yes, you can go with teacher recommendation or you could go with shop recommendation. But you have to be make sure you're aware of what flutes are around. So like you said, look at maybe just Google the, the flute brands that are out there and read the reviews and read what's, what they all do. So you've got some idea. You know, knowledge is power, isn't it? It so, is, yes. And there are, there are instances where you have a sort of a general music shop that have got two or three flutes for sale. They've been sitting on the shelf for a year. And you might go in and they might try and sell you that flute just because it's been sitting around for a long time and tell you it's a great flute. So you've got to be quite careful. I would always go to a specialist shop. In London, we're very lucky. We've mm, got... Three, uh, haven't we? We've got three. And you've got experts there who know what they're talking about so that you can ask them. You, that they'll be honest. You say, you know, right, what are all the beginner flutes? What aspects of the flute, those flute brands can you tell me about? And then and go from there. Because there are things, decisions, whether you buy closed hole, open hole, your, your C foot or your B foot, curved head joint, straight head joint. There are lots of decisions. But basically buy the one that actually works for you. Unfortunately, and I think it's certainly in uh, the modern era where the cost of good flutes are very, is very high. You do still have to be very careful when you're budgeting in that cheap doesn't necessarily lead to the joy of playing the flute. So I think you do have to be careful and weigh up why one flute, student flute, may be more expensive than another. Yeah, I think it's the same in anything you might buy, anything in retail, that cheapest doesn't mean the best. Yeah. Obviously you have to set a budget, but then within that budget, try everything that's available and then take advice. Totally endorse that. Um, next question, and I would imagine this is to do with the head joints, but to roll or not to roll the flute when playing? So I'd imagine, is it sort of rolling the... Rolling the, the hands in and out, I, would, I, I think that's what he means. But I, I would say don't ever roll your flute because by rolling the flute, you change the balance of it and so you alter your hand positions. You've got to think about your hand positions being fixed Balance is all important. There are three balance points. So there's your base of your first finger left hand, the thumb of your right hand, and your chin. And when you get the balance right, the flute is stable without using any other fingers. So if you roll the flute towards you, there's more weight of metal near near to you, and it will pull it round even more. And, of course, your hand positions change. What you want to do is get your flute stable with the balance correct, and then adjust the head joint where it needs to be based on that. And then learn to be flexible by moving your jaw to find your 
find your sound rather than rolling your fingers. So if you're finding that you're rolling the, your fingers, then you have a balance point issue. Yes. That, that's quite uh, an important one, Mo, and I hope you're listening to that, and I hope you're, you find that very informative. And his last question is, should adult learners go for exams? Okay, so exams certainly aid motivation, and they help set goals. I personally wouldn't recommend them for students aiming for a career in flute. Well, Um, (laughs) that's a surprise. Because they can have the effect of hindering progress. So they might start off by doing a few grade exams. Mm -hmm. But if you then, if you realise, you know, at sort of the age of 14, 15, that all you want to do is play flute and have a career in flute, uh, you need to learn the instrument. There are an awful lot of flute players with grade 8 thinking that they've learned everything when in fact they've probably learnt nothing because often the grade exams are used, you go from one exam to another where you're learning two set pieces, a study and a few scales and that's what each, each week of lessons you're doing, you're working towards that particular exam where there's, not, there's no time or little time to actually develop your tone, develop your articulation, develop your finger technique, to be aware of what you can do on the flute. And... Um, Many of these, these players who've done grade 8 so early think that they've sort of arrived. They come for auditions at the music colleges and seem totally unaware of what the level is. And they say, well, I've got grade 8. I mean, you'll often hear people say, they even say to me, oh, have you got grade 8? Um, <laughs> you know, it's, I, I'm sort of, it leaves you sort of speechless. Grade 8 is not a marker when you want to take the flute playing more seriously. So that is for the the serious music students. Now, it's different for adult learners. Now, I don't mean they're any less serious, but it is different for adult learners. They're not looking for a career in flute playing. And so exams then can help with setting goals and maintaining motivation. Also, adults' time is more limited and progress is a little bit slower. But they don't have targets. Quite often in schools, music teachers are, are set targets, either by the parents or by the school, whereby your pupils have to do exams once a year or something, you know, to help with the school, to help with portfolios. So as an adult learner, you have no targets that you have to to meet. So you can do it at your own time, at your own pace. And when you're ready, then is the right time to do an exam. So only go in for an exam when you're ready and know why you're you're doing that, that exam. What do you want from it? I'd imagine it'd be measurable, wouldn't it? Just to know it's measurable so that you can say, yes, I have achieved this, I've done something, I started as a beginner and now I've got this exam and I've achieved something. And now I can move on to the next stage. So Mo, go for it. Mo, go for it. Mo, go for it. That's hashtag Mo, go for it. <laughs> right, I think we've come to the end of the questions, Claire. In the future... I think we, we've had a we've had a natter on this, and our audience is very active and quite vocal and quite large at the moment. And I'd like to increase that. I'm sure you would too. I think we're going to plan to do some giveaways, aren't we? We are. Um, I did a giveaway in the first podcast. You did, yes. Yes, and I made a complete hash <laughs> of <laughs> telling people what to do. But basically, you know, if it's if you if we have things on, should we run it again now? We 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 could run it again now. Yes. Right. Let's, let's draw the line. Let's draw that free giveaway line and let's start again. Claire, 
what do you have as a prize giveaway for this week? Your CD, signed CD. Yes, we could do that again. Yeah. Um, and so to have a chance of winning a signed CD, you can enter via Instagram, Facebook or Twitter. But you, John Paul, need to tell people what they need to do because that's where I get it all wrong. Right. I think firstly what they have to do is they have to follow the Facebook page, which is... Claire? Talking Flutes. Talking Flutes Facebook page. And then if they want to enter, they simply have to do a post either on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter. And Instagram, it's on Claire Flute. Yes. And on uh, my one is TJ Flutes. And on Twitter, it's at Claire Flute. And Twitter, I'm, I've got the generic at Flute. And it's really just a post with a hashtag which says... Talking Flutes. Talking Flutes. And you will then be entered into the free giveaway because that pops up the Facebook or Instagram or Twitter feed. So we're starting with CDs, but we'll move on to music. We'll move on to sheet music. And then ultimately, at the end of the year, we're going to have a big giveaway. We're going to have an alto flute. And we've also got a flute. Oh, have we? Yes, we've got a Trevor James 10X flute to give away later on in the year. Are you going to do that on Talking Flutes or can I pinch it from you? I'm going to do it on Talking Flutes. Do we need to talk about that? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's fab. So, yeah, we're going to be rewarding our loyal and dedicated viewers from around the world with some giveaways. Uh, You get that on radio shows, don't you? But I haven't heard many podcasts that are sort of giving stuff away. No, I haven't heard any. No, and why not, eh? Why not have a bit more fun? Yep. Shall I give some whoopee cushions away? (laughs) I am the talking flutes extra, I'm the TF extra, I am the slightly wackier version of the two, aren't I? If that's what you need to do, yes, John Paul. And to encourage flute players to take them into band and to sit on them when in a quiet passage. Uh Uh-huh. No, if you could see how Claire is looking at me, you will know there I could... Oh, God, that is, that is dreadful. I mean, should we go back to the naughty step? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Claire, thanks once again for inviting me down. It's been a pleasure as always. Yeah, thanks very much, John Paul. It's TF Extra next week because this is a Talking Flutes podcast. So thanks very much. And um, I can't tell you what next week yet because I haven't recorded it. Oh, I look forward to it then. <laughs> Thank you, everybody. Goodbye. Talking Flutes and Talking Flutes Extra are podcast productions by the Trevor James Flute Company. For more information, visit trevorjamesflutes.com.